How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How you doing there? It is podcast time and if you hear the beeps, sirens and general road rage going on behind me, it is because I am in New York City. Uh, a place a place I love. John, I was just saying, I was saying yesterday, right? You know Washington Square down the road here beside me, right? Yeah. When yeah, we yeah. were kids, when we were kids in the 80s, right? Fellas would be terrified going in there trying to score some weed, right? Yeah. And I was walking through yesterday. It's about as edgy now as Mount Marion Avenue. <laughs> it's like the Mark, whole place has changed. I have to say, I'd like, I'm still recovering from Kilconomics, which was fantastic, by the way. But you went from Kilconomics... Across the pond, <laughs> and you haven't stopped. What's Not going even. On? I went from I went from Kilkenny to Dublin Airport to Heathrow, then I flew to a place I've never been anywhere quite as cold, John. Calgary in Alberta in Canada, on the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains. Nice. And it was nice. minus twenty-two when I arrived, and it went down to minus thirty-eight that night. Now wow. you have no idea what this sort of cold is like i mean it's kind of like joke cold it's like pretend yeah. cold and you know what i did do you know what i did to try and stave off the jet lag because the jet lag's horrendous because you're miles away i went into one of those heated plunge pools and then out in the snow oh. and then out in the thing and it was i you felt like it was the a, snow in the neck. i felt like a, i felt like a human dumpling at the end of it <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm just sitting there boiling in my own juices and then i, I did a gig i did a speech and i got back on a plane and I flew here to New York, so I'm zonked, completely zonked. I'd say you are. No, you're no good idea. It, you're looking good on it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's. I think it's the very, it's the very, very, very hazy sort of camera work on the old, on the old laptop. But do you know what I'm, we're going to do today, John? We're going to do a state of the nation for America. What you might hear outside, well, you'll certainly hear in, in a little while. I'll hear in a little while. Is brass bands, trumpets, the whole thing. It's Veterans Day yeah. in the U.S. today. And you kind of really get a sense of something about America when you see these thousands of soldiers and the whole of New York is well, closed Well, especially down. after the, the midterms. I mean, it's all kicking off over there at the minute. Yeah, so I'll tell you what we'll do, John. Rather than you and I wrap it on, I'll see you in a couple of days I'll be home. Let's talk to Jeff Goldberg. Jeff Goldberg is the editor of The Atlantic magazine. He's a brilliant mind. 
as his finger on the pulse. The Atlantic is a wonderful publication. And uh, let's go and talk to Jeff. Great stuff. Now we have a very special guest for you. Jeff Goldberg is the editor of The Atlantic magazine. For many, the premium, premium political, cultural magazine in the United States. I've been a subscriber for many, many years. An extraordinary, extraordinary amount of editorial nous comes out of this. And the man at the top is with us. Jeff, how are you? That was very nice. Maybe you can give our <laughs> subscription URL or something. Okay, so it's theatlantic.com forward slash subscriptions. Yes. Give it forward slash. Please send money. Yeah. <laughs> no, Please Jeff, listen, no. good to see you again. The last time I saw you, we were, we, were, we were late and chatting late at night. At least today we're slightly sober. Yeah, <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, let's get straight into it. Okay, I want yeah. to talk to you about the state of the nation. We're in the States. This podcast is going to be almost like a, a letter from America. We're 24, 48 hours after midterm elections. What happened what does this tell us about the states? It's a big question. You know, there's a lot of people here in America. I don't know if you know that it's even bigger than Ireland. Uh, so, it's actually mostly Irish, but it's bigger than Ireland. Uh, I actually, I believe, I actually believe reading about you that you actually told me you were brought up in an Irish-speaking, Irish-American area in Brooklyn. Yeah, See? yeah, yeah, in Brooklyn and Long Island. Uh, I have Irish relatives, actually. You know, there's a lot of mixing around here, and I have Irish relatives who I enjoy very much. That's a strange thing to say. Of course, I enjoy them. What does that mean? The basically, I've got some. I've, don't worry, I've got some relations I wouldn't talk to. <laughs> no, I have that too, <laughs> but just not the Irish side. I mean, okay. The, um, so what happened is is that a lot of people were expecting a Republican wave, and we didn't get the Republican wave, and now we're in the period when we're trying to figure out why we didn't have a Republican wave. I would point out before everybody, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, jubilation on the left side of the fence. Oh, we're safe. We're out of the woods, whatever. Republicans are still going to probably control the House. Republicans control the Supreme Court forever, essentially. Um, they have in Ron DeSantis, the overwhelmingly reelected governor of Florida, a very, very potent presidential candidate for 2024, much more potent than anything the Democrats have. So it's not like all the Republicans woke up one morning and said, you know, um, what was that about? You know, or what was that fever? The, the, you know, there's still a fever and there's still authoritarian um, uh, authoritarian streak that's running through a lot of our politics. But I would make a couple of very quick points. The the first is that, and I love this observation, I forgot who made it already. I think David Frum possibly said, what we're learning is that Americans don't mind if their politicians are in alliance with weirdos, but they don't want to vote for weirdos. And by weirdos is the second point. A lot of the folks, most of the folks running for office who were election deniers, who got on that kind of psychotic Trump train, you know, I won the election. How could you say I didn't? They lost. So there's apparently a more limited tolerance for that kind of nonsense than than we might have thought. Now that doesn't mean and here here just to just to go negative again and sort of note how the country is not out of the woods yet. Um there's still a hardcore of 30 35% of American voters who believe all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Absolutely. And, I mean for for us it's like it's, it's like a freak show. One of the most important members of Congress over the next 2 years is going to be Marjorie Taylor Greene who, you know, I don't have to tell you, she's one of the QAnon adherents, whether she's sincere about it or not. 
I can't say, but she has all kinds of wacko views. And because the margin is going to be so tight in the Congress, members of the Freedom Caucus, the rightmost caucus inside the inside the Congress, the House of Representatives, including people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, are going to have disproportionate power, you know. And and so it's going to be a weird couple of years. But the biggest thing, of course, is that, you know, never count the man out. Obviously, he did get elected president of the United States. But the, the most interesting thing is that Donald Trump himself seems a little bit on the back foot. Okay, it's interesting you say that because last night I decided to go out and see a couple of mates of mine in Brooklyn. So I got the the the, the four train out there, the N train, and, and, you know, just observed the whole thing and ended up in, uh, in uh, a place called Barclays, which I'd never been before. Okay, and we were just chatting politics in a bar. Mm-hmm. And they were saying to me, and they're kind of Irish Americans, always Democrats, etc. But they were saying to me that they really got the feeling that Trump is a loser. Yeah, that he and and they said that's a big change. Can I, I tease that out for me? Yeah, look, the thing he fears most in the world is being called a loser, right? The thing that drove him around the bend completely was actually losing. So that's that. What I mean, this is all deeply psychological. The reason he is claiming that he didn't lose the election is because he can't lose in his mind, right? You know, millions and millions of Americans are living inside the dysfunctional relationship with Donald Trump and his father, right? That's that's what we're doing for the last several years. Put that aside. If mainstream to right-wing Republicans feel as if Donald Trump is vulnerable, someone's going to start going in for the kill. People are scared. He's announcing probably next week that he's probably going to run for president. I mean, that's a way of sort of trying to, you know, pop the DeSantis bubble a little bit. But he also understands that he has to seem like a winner in order not to be overwhelmed. People hate him. People inside his party hate him. People find him to be a a lot of people who know better find him to be a dangerous clown. Right. Obviously, authoritarian impulses, all the rest. They're scared. They're scared of his followers. They're scared of his popularity in their congressional districts. They're scared of the base, not the majority of people, maybe not even the majority of Republicans, but but the most active portion of the Republican electorate, which loves Donald Trump or seems to love Donald Trump. If Donald Trump gets the stink of loserness on him and can't shower it off, he's finished. And the Democrats are going to be facing Ron DeSantis, which interestingly is probably a greater challenge. Trump is a loser. That's the thing. He he lost Georgia for them on the way to losing the presidency a couple of years ago. He's lost now in a big way. In these midterm elections, the party that's not controlling the White House usually wins big in the Congress, and that didn't happen. And a lot of people are blaming Trump and, and all of the attendant downstream Trump idiocy, including a bunch of wackadoo candidates. And, you know, tell me about then issues that the liberal left thought they couldn't galvanize their followers. Issues of abortion, women's yeah. rights, reproductive. They all came back and people voted. Yeah, there was a there was a conventional, an item of conventional wisdom a couple of weeks ago that American voters were more concerned about gas prices, gasoline prices, and inflation than they were about the state of our democracy or the fact that these, you know, various whack jobs were running for prominent office. Again, 
it's a big, complicated, messy country, and not just one thing is true. But what is also true is that something, it's, it's inchoate, it's hard to describe, but I've always believed, at least until the Trump era, or certainly since the, certainly before the Newt Gingrich era, that Americans, most Americans gravitate toward the center. We don't have parliamentary politics. We don't have specialized little parties that have their ideologies and then go into government and form coalitions, extremists and moderates. People, people tend to move toward the center, and that's what you're seeing a little bit. It's the Trumpism was a little bit too much. The threat to democracy was a little bit too much. The threat that the Supreme Court poses to abortion rights was a little bit too much. Remember, there are plenty of people, tens of millions of people who are opposed to abortion, including any level of abortion. But the majority of Americans were settled into Roe v. Wade, into, into, the, yeah. into the law of the land. And what the Supreme Court did, the Supreme Court that had basically been remade in Donald Trump's image, three of the nine people on the Supreme Court were appointed by him. What the Supreme Court did was they went too fast and too far for many Americans. And that actually did have salience in this election. They were, as the Brits would say, the, the quasi quaitang of uh, of the Supreme Court. Then too too quickly, they did stuff. About, we're just talking in the UK where they actually decided right. that they were going to change the world, and then it's like, oh my right. God, we went too quickly. Right. But it's the it same was, idea. But what what you're saying, Jeff, is that the this, the states, if we look at the results of this week, is recalibrating away from previous loud, noisy whack jobs in your own term extremes, and maybe coming to some sort of consensus again. Yeah, I don't want to go too far because <laughs> what we do, we overinterpret, especially we overinterpret. You know, I woke up, we're of no party or clique. That's our motto. But I'm also opposed to whack job authoritarianism. I can feel comfortable saying that. <laughs> it seems like a fairly reasonable possession. Oh, the era to take. of job authoritarianism is over. And then it's like, you know what? One election, one day, just cool your jets, Jeff. We don't know what's going to happen. And nobody knows anything anymore. I mean, Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016. So anybody who tells you they can understand what's happening here is just lying to you, you know. Um, by the way, I'm not sure if I like the word wackadoo or whack job better. Whack I'll job is much better. It's got it's got much more illicit oh. tendencies. Yeah, wackadoo well, is far too Disney, okay? Whack is a fine, yeah. But, right. okay, but let's, can I then talk to you about something that Europeans don't get? So... John and myself are of a generation of Irish people who came to work both legally and illegally in the United States in the 80s. Right. Saw America as a beacon by and large, although there was many anti-Reagan protests, there was the Iran-Contra affair, but we're talking, we're children of that generation. Yeah. And America for music, rock and roll, sex, drugs, all the good stuff, it was a country, it was a beacon for us, Okay. It doesn't seem to be, it's certainly not a beacon for our kids in the same way. No. I know this is a huge question, but in terms of the culture war, where do you think the brand of America, when can you pinpoint those moments where the brand of America changed, not just for yourselves, but for the rest of the world looking in? Yeah, I would push back a little bit on the overarching premise, and I can't speak to what young Irish people feel um, about America, but I've been in Ukraine this year, and I know what young Ukrainians think about America, and I know what Taiwanese people think about America. So I'm actually, by the way, we're going to go there to Ukraine and Taiwan in a second. But just to give the, the sort of the, the general West European yeah. feel, 
It's interesting, and it varies from country to country. Look, millions of people still try to immigrate to America each year. For some reason, a large portion of the Republican Party thinks that's a bad thing. You, you know, if the choice is having people want to live with you or not want to live with you, I vote for, like, the want to live, yes. you know. Nobody nobody wants to immigrate to mainland China. Nobody's, nobody's like, trying to get a visa to go have permanent residency in Moscow. Like, I, I take it as a compliment. That said, I think there's a, probably a combination. I mean, this is probably true in Western Europe more than other places, but a combination of head-scratching, like, you got, yeah, we like your music. We like hamburgers. We like whatever the hell we like. We don't understand why you shoot up schools all the time. We don't understand why <laughs> you replaced a guy like Barack Obama with a guy like Donald Trump. That makes no sense. This that's is what I mean. That's this a is what I mean. Plenty of times. Like, I, we, you know, like, like, I mean, it's almost, you know, it's like, the, what is this, what explains this bipolar quality of your politics and of your culture. The truth is, is that we are two nations. I'm not saying that we're in a civil war, but what I'm saying is maybe we've always been in a kind of a civil war. There, there are two countries here. You know, what you're having in Europe, uh, people who don't understand what category to place America in, because the truth is it's in both categories. You know, there are places in America where no smart young Irish person would want to live. And there are places in America that would be magnetically attractive for a young, smart Irish person yeah. to come live. And all these things can be true. And the fight isn't one of the things this election showed is that the fight isn't over. We have not had the decisive round. Which team has won? Team, you know, open, expansive, optimistic. Come on, everybody. Let's build something interesting here. We know we're imperfect, but we're trying to become a better country versus the kind of white ethno-nationalist forces of reaction that are scared about the future. Technology has disrupted them. I, I have plenty of sympathy here, by the way, because, you know, we're, we're talking about people who are in left-behind kind of communities. Yeah, communities. absolutely. It's misery. NAFTA screwed them in some ways. They've been screwed in a lot of different ways. And then the demagogues come along and say it's the Mexicans' fault, it's the black people's fault, it's the globalist's fault, it's George Soros's fault, whatever. The point is, is that the fight is on. The fight has been on. You know, we, we don't have an answer to this. One answer is to, and again, this is the part of Republican Party politics I just don't understand, is why wouldn't we want to be attractive to young Irish people who want the expansiveness, openness, possibility, career-defining years. Precisely. Uh, By the way, listeners, I'll just give you an image. Jeff at this stage is actually uh, holding his head in his hands <laughs> as he speaks about why he can't understand. And it is true, you know, like, why yeah. wouldn't you be? Because, the, I mean, the, the story of the United States, as told, and I think as pretty accurate, is generation after generation of revolving doors of people coming, largely coming to do good stuff, changing the world, being innovative and driving this place forward. I mean, there is this, the manifest destiny is real. There's no doubt of that. And, and, it, and it has an excitement that other countries do not have still. No. Yeah. I mean, Ireland's pretty exciting. Yeah, but we had 800 years of shit, so it's exciting yeah. for 18 yeah. months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But by the way, can I make one specific point in yes. context? And I have this in the Jewish context, too. A kind of person I don't understand is a Jewish person, an Irish person, Italian person, who doesn't support, in principle, the idea that America is refreshed and revitalized and grows because of waves of immigration. We all benefited from immigration. So when I see people named McCarthy and McConnell, 
yeah. coming out as hardliners against immigration. It's like, uh, just remind me, how did you get here? Yeah, no, I'm with you completely. And there's not just McCarthy, McConnell, there's a hell of a lot back. And of course, we go back to McCarthy himself, Joe McCarthy. And it's just weird. And if you look at, if you look at the American history and the know-nothings and the star-spangled banner and the fact that we were the, we were the epicenter of anti-immigration in the 1850s. And we, we were the people the wasps hate. The Irish were the actual ethnicity that started right. America's nativism. Just as the, Jew, the Jews became white, quote unquote, in the American context, well after they got here. Irish, same thing. Italians. Yeah, no, an actual fact, there's a great book by Noel Ignatieff called How the Irish Became White. Yeah. Published in Harvard. And he's Michael Ignatieff's dad. Do you remember the liberal candidate from sure, sure. Canada? Canadian. His dad. Yeah, they're Canadians. And it's called How the Irish Became White. And it's exactly this. You arrive basically in your huddled masses, you're poor, and you're a threat. And the, the, the progress of how you actually became more American. And the Jews, I presume, went on the same path from about the 1880s, 1890s. The Italians, likewise, we went from the 1850s. And then somewhere around the 1960s, we were all American. And that was okay. Speaking of America, there's one area that I want to talk to you about is foreign policy, Jeff. You have sat down with Zelensky. A, what sort of character is he? B, what's your take now? I'm worried right now because I'm. this is the debate, and we're covering this debate in The Atlantic and hosting some interesting pieces on this, in fact. I have this anxiety that Ukraine is going to do so well against Russia, Russia's going to have its back up against the wall that it's going to do something insane like deploy a battlefield nuclear weapon or test a nuclear weapon in a way that's very, very threatening. Um, my take is that, um, yeah, by the way, here's the futility of prediction, right? We're talking about the 2020, 2022 election. That's nothing compared to February, <laughs> 2022, when it's like, oh my God, the Ukrainians are going to all die in 48 hours. And meanwhile, they're kicking their asses up and Completely. down, up and down Ukraine. I mean, just to, you know, Kirsten today. Um, and, and and so why bother predicting? You know what I mean? I, I, why bother trying to sort of imagine that the future is much more interesting than anything of us can contemplate? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Zelensky, by the way, here's a theory. I'm just making this up on the spot. It's probably bullshit, but <laughs> let me just go with it. No, no, no. Let's go with it. That Putin helped the Democrats... And the, this slate of candidates who have done much better and Biden in this election. And here's why, because Putin convinced us that America still has meaning in the world, that we still have good to do in the world. Certainly the Ukrainians feel that way because they're shooting up these Russian tanks with American weapons. Right. And so Zelensky is a better American in some ways than the average American. Zelensky believes in America and the American ideal and American power more than a lot of Americans do. And so I just think that Russia provided a very useful reminder to the entire world, including the American elector, that, oh, you know what? There is a qualitative difference within America, as crazy as America is and as imperfect. No, no. I, that, all right, I'm just going to roll with this theory. No, but I think it's, it's a good theory because, I mean, you know, the, the, many people say, you know, the reason, people say, why did America get bogged down in this culture war? Why did it all emerge in the 1990s and the noughties or whatever? And, you know, the idea is when, when, when you remove the Soviet Union as enemy number one on the outside, 
Well, then you've no enemy on the outside. So you, you turn in on yourselves, and then you can you can you give this culture war the permission to flourish because there's nothing binding you together. And now yeah. what you're saying is, hold on a second. Now the world, it's not just Ukrainians, it's every single European yeah. country, realizes we need oh. warts and all the United States. Putin unified NATO in a way that no NATO leader could unify NATO, including Absolutely. the president. Right. I mean, still hard to get the Germans to like pay their fair share, but <laughs> yeah, no, nah, don't worry. We've been on the receiving end. So we've we've both received money from Germany and owed money to Germany. I can tell you, owing money to Germany is much more difficult. You kind of you, they remind you, you, they remind, they you, remind you a lot, a lot, and they, yeah, 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 and they also remind us es gibt kein Alternativ, when which when you say it in German is much more scary. <laughs> then there's no alternative. Oh, by the way, a lot of things in German. No, we don't have to <laughs> <We're scary. laughs> say a lot of things in German that sounds scary. Uh, <laughs> but 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 let's go to Zelensky. Let's go to Ukraine, okay? Because yeah. I'm I'm looking at it this right. Uh, in August of 1995, this is my little bit of military history, but I, I remember it very well. The government in Belgrade. I'm talking about Kherson now. The government in Belgrade under Milosevic, trying to save his own skin and trying to look for look for a deal basically abandoned his Krajinian Serbs, about 400,000 people who lived in the Serb ethnic area of Croatia. He saw the Croatian army about to kick ass with American uh, backing. He knew that he was going to lose. And the Serbian army, for the first time in that conflict since 1992, in August 95, turned around and fled. They just ran. And this, of course, led to, within weeks, a deal. Within weeks, it was a sense that, that, that Milosevic said, okay, you can have it, okay? Mm. I screwed up, you can have it, but I want to survive. When I see the Russians leave Kherson, that's the image I have in my head. That if they are in truth leaving, that's moving towards some sort of negotiation. Yeah, there's a little bit of a dispute inside the Biden administration now between uh, forces, including interestingly in the Pentagon, who say now is the time for the Ukrainians to solidify their gains at the negotiating table and maybe some people in the White House who feel like it's not yet time. Ukrainians can do solidified more. I mean, the Pentagon, for reasons that make sense, the Pentagon is uh, more keyed into the threat of a nuclear, uh, a scale up to some kind of nuclear event, right? And obviously to avoid that. I'm not saying the White House isn't, but I think there is, I mean, and we've seen this for months now, this debate Within the pro-Ukraine camp, how far do we push Ukraine before Russia feels like its back is against the wall and does something really precipitous and crazy? And so that's, by the way, it's, it is amazing to think that this is what we're talking about. And I know. Not, and not just like, uh, you know, new live aids for Ukrainian refugees, you know, because Ukraine has been absorbed into Russia. But so that that's where we're at. And, you know, I I have a lot of sympathy for the, it's called the Zelensky position, the mainstream Ukrainian position, which is like, wait a second, they invaded my country and we're defending ourselves and we've pushed them out of certain parts of our country. So we're going to go to the negotiating table as the winner and discuss how much of Ukraine they get to keep. Makes no fucking sense, right? Yeah. From a moral standpoint, it's like, how about you go back to Russia and we and have- And then we start. Order- and then we can negotiate whatever we negotiate. But it's like, you seize 30% of my country. I'm making these numbers up. You seize 30% of my country. We push you out of uh, 20% of that 30%. 
And now we're going to negotiate about how much you get to keep of the rest, even though we're stronger than you are. And of course, we're right and you're wrong. You know, boy, I'm whipping myself up into like a pro-Ukrainian fervor, just saying. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But It you doesn't know, make any sense. But, 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 you know, diplomacy is not about morality. Diplomacy is about how do we prevent more people from getting killed? How do we prevent an escalation that would be devastating for the entire world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's a status quo ante, the, the 2000. I mean, this is not the first time Russia, Ukraine, you know, invaded Ukraine in recent years. 2014 was an invasion. Sure. We just no, forgot, absolutely. sort of mostly forget about that, that the Russian has been Russia has been occupying Ukrainian territory for quite a while. And the world was it's kind of interesting. Right. And the world was sort of like, yeah, OK. I mean, I spent time, a lot of time studying the Obama administration reaction to that. And the Obama administration position was, yeah, well, you know, that's Russia's sphere of influence and we don't care as much as Russia does. So they have escalatory dominance in this. And so we're not even going to try to escalate because I ain't going where they're going. Yeah, precisely. Precisely because I, I ain't going where they're going and I don't want to go where they're going. I don't want to go where they're going. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jeff, can we switch the discussion now, right? to Israel. You have been... I thought we were going to talk about my investments in crypto. <laughs> Twitter, your investments in crypto. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm investing heavily in Twitter and crypto. <laughs> okay, so you can... No, you can I say, don't want to talk about... I just think it's very funny. I just think it's... I mean, I know it's not funny. These are tragedies so, for people and people... Are okay, but let's talk about... Like, I mean, let's talk about Twitter, media, what Elon Musk is doing or not doing... You, you talked about conversations in Donald Trump's head with his dad. I'm now looking at conversations in Elon Musk's head with himself. Okay. <laughs> right. I, I, it's the most He's, astonishing thing. And by the way, it's like he spends all of his time on Twitter as opposed to running Twitter. Like, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he spends all his time on Twitter asking people what the fuck should he do with something he's just paid $44 billion. No, in all seriousness, I mean, I know, you know, you're an economist, so I'm not going to try to keep up. But 
my assumption is that there are very few instances in in modern history in which somebody has so aggressively sought to destroy the value of his own company this yes. quickly. Yeah. I, I don't I don't understand it. Because it, no, it doesn't make sense. We were I think on the podcast last week, I think John had said that as far as I could see, Elon Musk in one deal destroyed about thirty billion dollars yeah. yeah. of value. I mean that's that's very impressive. You really have to try hard. But this week as well he also mentioned that there was a risk of going bankrupt. Which yeah. is bizarre. The thing is crazy. The thing is right. absolutely. And, and then, of course, at the same time, the young fella, uh, S, I, I'm always very worried when people go by their initials, particularly if they're under 30. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, like, like MBS, right? Yeah, like MBS or DSK or whatever his name is. <laughs> yeah. So DSK is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And MBS is the is the geezer with the curly hair and the Bermuda shorts. <laughs> yeah. And between the two of them, they managed to fuck up another company. Oh, my God. It's the overrated genius week here in America. Um, <laughs> the part about Elon Musk, the, the crypto guy, uh, I don't know, you know, when you don't understand crypto like I do, you tend to think it's a Ponzi scheme. And then weeks like this kind of reinforce the idea that, I mean, not a Ponzi scheme, but it's at the Ponzi level right now. It's at the Ponzi yeah. end of the spectrum. It is. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a continuum and it's closer to the Ponzi end than the Bank of America. <laughs> yes, exactly. But the, the thing about Elon Musk that I don't understand is he actually is really talented guy. He He mainstreamed electric vehicles. He built a remarkably successful company, builds electric vehicles that work well. He goes, he shoots rockets into space all the time. He's better at it than the American government. <laughs> this goes to my theory that Twitter is actually, Twitter will one day show up in the, I don't know if you have it or not, the DSM seven or eight, whatever it is, the, the big book of psychiatric disorders that did categorize. <laughs> and like, Twitter is in the addiction category and it can take it can take sane people and make them nuts. And I, I just this is not understandable. At a no, deep it makes level. it makes no sense. And as you said, for somebody who was financially very savvy, built not just companies, but built wealth, was on the cusp of all sorts of technological innovation, appeared to have everything under control, so much so that he could call up, you know, half of Wall Street and says, look, I've got this mad idea to buy Twitter. Will you back me at any course? They say, yeah, no problem. How much do you want? Yeah, we'll sign up here. Fuck it. Yeah, we'll have that. And can we can we have more of that? And can we sell the really shitty options to our third-rate clients <laughs> yeah. to pick them up? And we'll, and we'll issue really dodgy bonds against that. And sure, who's not? We're all going to make money. And then he rings up Larry Ellison and all these really other rich guys. And he says, hey, lads, are you in for a few billion? They said, yeah, whatever it is, name your price, Elon. This is the weird thing. Yeah. You know, it's funny because like you can literally hear him saying, "Up, hey, listen, guys, I have a really bad idea. You give me billions of dollars and then I blow it at the track. And then they all say, great. Yeah. How much do you want? Yeah. Here's a sure thing. Yeah. I love my Tesla crossover SUV, by the way. And it's like, so here's a billion dollars for you to like waste on essentially methamphetamine. Yeah, you know, methamphetamine for journalists. Methamphetamine for your fingers. Yeah, no, it's it's so mad. You know, I wouldn't put them in charge of a fucking post office account at this stage. And nor will anybody else. It's a weird this thing. This is how though. people go bust. You're saying you drive his car. You drive his car because it's a safe car. It's a strange thing. I had that feeling. Remember, remember Ben Carson? There's a little bit of a deep cut. The brilliant surgeon Donald Trump appointed to be the head of health and human services. Brilliant surgeon. And it was the first time I ever thought, there's a guy I would allow to, to, to cut my 
head open to operate on my brain, but I wouldn't let him teach my children in school. You know, and that's the sort of the Elon Musk split. It's like, I'll get into your car and drive, but I won't give you $10 to invest. <laughs> anyway. That's a good aside. It's a good aside. I'm going to end on the issue of Israel, okay? Because yes. you, the last time we chatted, we chatted a lot about it. Israel has now got a new government. Yeah. Number one. Number two, I talked to many, many people about Ukraine. And they said to me, look, hold on a second. You're all getting your knickers in a twist over Ukraine, rightly so. But there is another country that has invaded the space, the land of another country many, many years ago, 30, 40 years ago. And the world is not saying squeak anymore. And that's the Palestinian question. Do you see, and I know it's any equivalence between the basic idea that Russia invades Ukraine, Ukrainians fight back. Yeah. Israel... At the end of the day, we can talk about who started, who did, who didn't. But at the end, they, they take the land of somebody else. Yep. When yep. those guys fight back, they're terrorists. When the Ukrainians fight back, they're heroes. Right. Well, the Ukrainians aren't engaging in terror. The Ukrainians are not trying to kill Russian children on school buses. Put that aside. They, but you get they, the point. I mean, I know it's. I know it becomes overly reductionist and ridiculous kind of downward spiral to do who did what. Yeah. But, the, the, the occupation of the West Bank came about, I'm not going to defend the occupation of the West Bank, but it came about because Jordan, which was then the occupying force in the West Bank, started attacking Israel in 1967 from the West Bank. And so Israel went in defensively to seize this land from which it was being attacked. Put that aside, that that's it's not irrelevant, but it's, it is irrelevant to the question of what do you do with this now that you have it? And my view has been that Israel made the series of wrong decisions about it. You... You hold that territory, like you sort of put it in the bank for negotiation purposes. You say, you recognize me, you, you give me guarantees, safety, and we'll just turn the territory back over to you. Israel fell in love with holding that land, a certain religious portion of the government fell in love with holding that land, and now we have the settlement issues, and that's the entanglement of the settlements and all the rest, and it's very hard to see how this gets disentangled right now. The longer this goes on, the more entangled it is, and so eventually— said this many times publicly, eventually the Palestinians in the West Bank, who have never had a good strategy, right? They, you know, they do the same thing over and over again, sometimes for a hundred years, and it doesn't work. Eventually they'll say, you know what? No more Palestinian nationalism. Just give us the vote. You actually control our lives. So we're just going to be Israeli. And then the Israelis have to say, that's an existential question for Israel. Like, are we as, are we a safe haven refugee camp for Jews? Or are we just... Arabs and Jews, everybody together. And that will force the issue. I think the, the Palestinians can force that issue tomorrow if they wanted by just saying, give us the vote. And by the way, and especially in places like Ireland, but but in many other places, people understand that language very yeah. clearly. Give me the vote. You're in charge. You're functionally in charge of my life. So just give me the vote. What you have now, unfortunately, you had a good prime minister who's departing, Lapid, who was interested yeah. in all these complicated questions. You have Netanyahu coming back in He's not interested in anything. So he's under corruption investigation, been indicted. He wants to just change the rules so that he gets un, unindicted. And the real danger here, and by the way, one of the interesting things about this is that it's not unique. I see Israel sometimes as a very, very small India, which is to say you have this new ethno-religious nationalism that has become very, very toxic. Obviously, it's become very, very toxic in India, which was formerly a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-confessional democracy that's now sort of a Hindu nationalist state. 
obviously huge scale, 200 million Muslims yeah. are make up a minority. But the same basic framework. Yeah, and by the way, this is Hungary and it's Italy and it's Donald Trump's America. I mean, I mean the same the same wave that we've experienced here and that various European countries have experienced to some degree or another. Brazil experienced and it's undone momentarily, you know, like at least for this moment. That that same wave is affecting Israel. This kind of ethno-religious nationalist urge or or temptation and for Israel, just as for India, it's not going to end up in anything good because it creates permanent tension. If you create permanent second-class status in India for Muslims and Hungary for whoever and Israel for the Palestinians, you, you know, people don't want it and they're going to continue to push back against it. The real challenge, and this is the formula that I, that, that I think is the truest, is that Israel can't stay in the West Bank and be a Jewish majority, safe haven for Jews and a democracy. But it can't leave the West Bank because you have so many radicalized, Iran-supported terror groups that could come in just as they came into Gaza and use the West Bank as a launching pad for attacks. So you're in an impossible dilemma. And what Israel's going to have to do is turn to America ultimately and say, look, we got to figure out a way to guarantee our safety, but disentangle, get ourselves out of the hair of the Palestinians. And then that's the only way that Israel survives as a, quote, Jewish, Jewish majority democracy. There are other things that could happen and they're all bad because there's a level of hatred there that doesn't, you know, again, you know, you could use Pakistan and India as, 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 as a larger scale analogs. But there are global trends that are affecting this. There are specific things. But like it's, it's not, from my perspective, it's just a really unhealthy situation. And I remember President Obama saying this, said it to me, said it to other interviewers. He says, when he was having his fights with Netanyahu, he would always say, just tell me how it ends. Tell me how yeah. just not dealing with something helps get you to a solution that would work for everyone. Sorry, I didn't mean to give like a big Middle East speech, but... No, 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 know, because it, it, brings, it brings me nicely to what I'm looking at the window here is a thing called Veterans Day. Because what you're saying is there comes a moment where the world, whether it's in Ukraine or in Israel, holds up their hands and says... We need America to sort this out. Now, America's part of the problem with its, you know, its full support of Israel. Many people say was that's part of the problem. It's, but eventually something says, we need an adult in the room here. And that adult has to come in and has to have the firepower. I'm looking at the window at Veterans Day. Yeah. Okay, at the, at the firepower America has, right. at the position of the military, deep inside the establishment of the fact that the military is America in many cases. It's what gives America its ability to project its power from this place surrounded by two large oceans that could very easily and has in the past say, you know what, it's not my problem, and look in upon itself. But it doesn't do that. It still looks out. Yeah. To what extent, as we conclude this, when I, when I go down to the Veterans Parade, to what extent is that America still very, very much, despite the culture war, Despite mm -hmm. the economic downturn, we don't know what's going to happen in the economy in the next little while, but that America is still very much alive. Well, let me make 15 or 16 quick points for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me try to boil those 15 or 16 down to a couple of points. Um, the first is like the, the framework you provided is true, but it's not always true. It wasn't true in Ireland in the sense that George Mitchell wasn't in uniform. But, but somehow, that, that, that's just the sheer weight of America in the period leading up to the Good Friday Agreement, you needed America to come in and just kind of say, all right, everybody, let's just, let's just figure this out. And so that was a wonderful use of soft power 
But everybody always knows that behind the soft power is the hard power. And that hard power also has an economic, obviously huge economic power. I, I think we're learning this year that, all right, here's the formula for you. From the American perspective, there are three crucial regions of the world from an economic and political standpoint. East Asia, the Middle East, Europe, right? If America withdraws, right, back behind, hides behind its oceans, as it has periodically, the vacuum created by its withdrawal from Asia is filled by China. If it withdraws from Europe, the vacuum is filled by Russia. If it withdraws from the Middle East, the vacuum is filled by Iran. You know, geopolitics, like nature, abhors a vacuum, right? So the question you have to ask, even critics of America have to ask, is like, Okay, is an Asia in which China is the dominant power better than an Asia in which the United States is playing a role? And so on. I don't know if, if Americans really understand that. Americans aren't pacifists by any stretch of the imagination. Americans' objections that grew over time to the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War were not because we were pacifists. Americans like to just win. I mean, it goes back to Donald Trump, the fear of being a loser. Americans love to win wars. They hate to lose wars. And they also, because we have the attention span of fleas, we hate wars that go on for too long. That's why the Persian Gulf War in 1991 was a perfect American war. 100-hour invasion. Saddam runs away. Call it a day. Let's have a parade. And literally had a huge parade in New York where you're, where you're sitting. But, you know, this is why I come back to this point all the time about how Zelensky and others across the world are better at articulating America's role in the world than most Americans at this point. We're filled with self-doubt, self-loathing. The culture wars, which are useless, you know, create a kind of bad vibe, bad feeling. And there is a leftist critique that says, until we perfect ourselves, who are we to tell other people how to behave? The right-wing critique is, who cares about all these savages across the seas? It's not our problem. We're just going to, like build a fort here and defend the white ethnic majority. So despite all of this, we still have the most potent military in the world, right? And despite all of this, we still use our power on occasion to do great things, including supplying the Ukrainians with the weapons they need to throw back Russian imperialist invasion. And we're not talking about this as much yet, but we're also going to be turning Taiwan into a porcupine. And that's that's the the shorthand is the porcupine strategy. We're going to make it so unpleasant for the Chinese to consider invading Taiwan by building up their defenses that they won't do it. And only America is going to do that. It's not going to be Germany. It's not going to be the UK. It's not going to be Japan. Only America is doing that. So Veterans Day, which is you know actually comes out of Armistice Day, World War One Armistice Day, is just another manifestation of the fact that compared to many Western Europe. European countries, America, for all of these complications and problems, still thinks about military power, still venerates its military, still has a kind of vicarious military culture. Most Americans don't go anywhere near the military, right? But we still have this role for the military because we understand at some basic level that that hard power is the ultimate guarantor that America will have a role to play in the world. Jeff Goldberg, we will leave it there and uh, a tour de force. Jeff, that was fantastic. Thank you yeah, so much. I, I made much. all that stuff up. I don't know if any of it's true, but it's some of, <laughs> some of it sounded. Well, at least there were verbs and nouns. Man, it sounded really, really good. I'm taking notes. I'm telling you. I'm trying to get the verbs and nouns in the same sentence. You <laughs> yeah, know? Jeff, listen, great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Well, certainly America is where it's at. It's all happening there. That's particularly because I've arrived, John. That's why well, it's that's, all happening. You can sense this. That's not a Veterans Day parade. That's one for you, Mike. <laughs> Ticker tape parade for you. The Kim Il-sung of <laughs> economics. They're all coming down Fifth Avenue. Fifth <laughs> Avenue, Fifth Avenue showing textbooks and graphs and charts. <laughs> Come here. Jeff was fantastic there. Like, and he covered so much stuff. Stuff that we'll probably have to tease out over the next few weeks. Yeah. But it was a long one, so let's leave it for now. But on Thursday, we're going to have your conversation with Nassim Taleb. Oh, the great Nassim Taleb. That was a humdinger. Uh, yeah, it was a humdinger. And I'll tell you the fuck, I'll just tell you how I met Nassim Taleb. Fascinating thing. Right. And I contacted him, I didn't know him, and I invited him to Kilconomics. Somebody put us together, and he said, interesting, I'll meet you in a restaurant. It's a Lebanese restaurant uptown, Right. So I walk in and he sits down beside me. And I mean, Talib, I've been a huge fan of Talib for years. But the most interesting thing he said to me, he says, uh, do you have a proper job? This is after about a glass of wine. I he said, said, no. <laughs> he, said, he said, good. He says, do you have a permanent source of income? I said, no. He said, are you beholden to anyone? I said, no. He said, I'm coming so. <laughs> That's it. That's why he came. He said, if you were an academic institution, some government-sponsored thing, some Goldman Sachs-sponsored thing, you know, no way. He said, you've got skin in the game. If this thing fails, you fail. Therefore, I'm with you and I'm over. And that's why he came. Well, we'll hear all that conversation on Thursday. Brilliant. Talk to you then. Cheers, guys. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.